Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. You're listening to Arabiyat with Linda and Sareya. I'm Linda. And I'm Sareya. Joining us in studio is Iraqi Canadian rapper, educator, and activist Yassina Salman, better known as the narcissist. He's based in Montreal and hails from Basra, Iraq, and he grew up between Canada and the UAE. This past summer, he released his latest album, World War Free Now. Welcome. Hey, how's it going? Good. Well, it's good having you here. I've actually been a fan of your work since my undergraduate uh, years in Berkeley. Amazing. Yeah. And Thank I, you so much. And man. I played the music all the time. I got my roommate into it. Um, but what I noticed about you what, that was different to me than like other Arab artists that I had come across was that you're very like beyond just the content of your music, what you're what you're talking about is that like in everything that you do, your collaborations, um, your music videos, the way you dress, you're very like outwardly Arab. Mm. And is that something that you wanted to do intentionally? No, I think, you know, uh, reference-wise, both artistically, if, you know, and if we're talking about fashion or music, or I, I like to blend cultures because that's who I am. You know, growing up in Canada, it's a bit different than, it's not a bit different, it's very different from America. Whereas you guys sort of have to um, uh, pronounce your American identity. Canada doesn't really have a solid identity like American identity does. It's very much like what's your origin and celebrating that as your Canadianness, you know? So uh, even with fashion or music, I try to stay away from the Arab box. But if I was to make a piece of clothing that's in collaboration with a young Arab uh, designer, it would be something like a abaya kimono. You know, I'd mix something that I like from the West or the East with a touch of where we're from because I think it's important for me to carry my mother culture with me wherever I go. So, On that note, uh, at the premiere film screening of the Arab Film Festival, you, you did your outfit was like yo Jewish or some like Orthodox Jewish outfit. You want do you want to explain that? Because that was funny. You made you talked about it and you're yeah, like, yeah, who's that Jewish guy? <laughs> yeah, I, I just feel like people looked at me like, who is that Jewish guy? But really, you know, the the clothing I was wearing, both the pants and the jacket, are designed by a a Syrian guy called Ibrahim Mimu out, out of L.A. He he he's an independent designer and. He took really like Japanese cuts for his clothing, including the shirt, actually. The whole outfit is designed by him. Mm. So um, Ibrahim made that. So it's actually like a Syrian guy that made the clothing. And the hat is a Brixton hat, which is a, a brand out of Boston. And I was wearing, you know, sne- I was wearing Yeezys. So I wasn't really trying to okay. look Hebrew, but I guess the just the combination of all of it made me look like a Hasidic guy. But um, right. And and that's the thing, like with with fashion and visual culture, we attach a lot of pre 
suppositions to them, but it's not an attempt to pay homage to anything. It's just really what I'm into, you know? So I don't place borders on what I rock. I don't, I, I don't rock skirts, but I rock whatever I feel comfortable wearing, you know? I don't feel like uh, I need to limit what I wear, you know? Yeah. Well, I wanted to go back about your, what you were saying about Canada. Mm. And you're from Montreal, and I know that there's a large Arab community in Montreal. Mm. And do you think, because, you know, a lot of what we discuss on the podcast is the fact that we don't really have this, like, new emerging Arab diaspora culture in the United States because we're so far away from each other. Mm. But in Montreal, there's more, there's, I've never been there, but what I hear is there's more a concentrated group of Arabs there. You know, you're you're surrounded by the culture constantly. Um, do you feel like because of that, because of being there and being based there, that it's made it a little bit easier for you to experiment with your music in ways that you might not have necessarily been able to do? In America? In America, yeah. I mean, it's crazy because when I come to the States, you guys have a more concentrated population in general. There's more people in America. So to go to an event like yesterday and there was 1,800 Arabs of different origin and different religions all in one space. I've never experienced that in Canada. It's either like a super Muslim event or, you know, specifically Lebanese event or the, but there isn't really that you don't see that cocktail happening in a in an artistic setting, you know? So it's funny that you say that because I feel that way about the states. Like I see the Arab community here more engaged but I also see that there's a bit of a um, a fracture in the community here because it's more defensive as a presentation of the culture to the West, being that the American government is your government and the relationship it has to the Middle East. It seems as though people are more pronounced with their Islam and their Arabness here than in Canada, whereas Canada, it's just we're just ourselves. So when I go to Concordia where I teach – you know, there's a huge Palestinian community. A lot of the restaurants are like men at each spots around the school. There's a lot of activists that come out of there. But four or five blocks down is McGill, which is more predominantly a Jewish campus, you know. And then you go four or five blocks down from there, and it's the Hasidic neighborhood. And then you go to the west side of the city, and it's Ville Saint-Laurent, which is all Lebanese. And we call it Ville Saint-Liban because mm -hmm. the big supermarket there is Adonis. It's a Lebanese supermarket. So because we have that identity where we can embrace where we're from and be comfortable with it and still be Canadian, here it's like, no, I'm Lebanese, but I live in America. There it's just like, I am who I am. So I don't know. Maybe we, we both view it the same way. You see Canada as that way and I see America as that way, which is really crazy, you know? Right. But, but it definitely is a more – it's a smaller city, Montreal, so the activism is more pronounced because we have a smaller population. Whereas you guys are drowned out by the amount of people and amount of cultures that are on top of each other here, you know. In the Bay Area, but what do you? What about the rest of the the East Coast? Have you you've traveled like all yeah, over yeah, the U.S.? Over. Do you think that the Bay Area community, which is very diverse in general, with mm. different minorities, also different p types of Arabs, a lot of Christians here and Muslims, but more, a lot of Christians um, more than I think other locations in the um, United States. Mm. Have you noticed any differences? Like, if you have you performed in Dearborn and like yeah, something yeah. different. I mean, Michigan is its own animal, you know. Yeah. Um, but I also haven't stayed there long enough to get a vibe. Like, I just go and I see it and I leave. Whereas when you go to New York, you know, all the all the bodegas are run by Yemeni dudes and Egyptian dudes. But they seem very internal with their culture. They're not really trying to put it out there because they're under attack, you know, in a way publicly. 
but it's very diverse in America. I just don't know how you guys navigate the cultural landscape in the country uh, without being defensive or having yeah. to be. Well, with so much propaganda aimed yeah. at us in yeah. a negative way, of course, we're on the defensive. Yeah. Whereas in Canada, I think people are just allowed to practice their culture without feeling the defensiveness. Um, they retain the Arabic language better. Mm. I noticed Arabs in from Canada like just speak so much better Arabic as mm. if they're from the Middle East sometimes. Also, you guys are, are a couple of generations deeper than us. Maybe, here. yeah. Um, and in Canada, don't get it twisted. Like the main topic of like discussion in public with the conservative party is the niqab and Islam and, and like reasonable accommodation of culture in the city. So that's a major concern for the top part of the government. But in the streets, like we don't think about it. You know, there's the racism is there and it's ever present in every Western society, but it's not as uh, as volatile as it is in America. Also, because we don't have guns everywhere, that extreme reaction we don't have as an option. So dialogue is the, the main thing that we go towards, you know. While you were talking, I also was thinking of the UK. Mm. I feel like also the Arab populations in the UK are less, even though they have to be defensive about if they're Muslim, about their Islam. Mm. But I just feel like because there's not that sense of constantly having to defend yourself, mm. they're more, especially in speaking uh, about art, I see a lot of more interesting work that comes out of artists in the UK and mm. like yourself in Canada than I feel like we've been allowed to hear or that that we hear of as much, you know, like really experimental stuff. Like what comes to mind is Fatima Al-Qadiri. She does like, mm, yeah, she's Kuwaiti course, and she course, does like yeah, yeah. really experimental sound. But she's in the States, no? Uh, no, I, lives, think, I thought she, she was lives, UK based. She lives between New York and London. Right, right but I think she came out of she UK. She came out of the UK, yeah. Right. And I think that's also geographical. Like they're halfway there. Right. So, so their connection to back home is uh, probably, they probably go back more often back mm -hmm. home, you know. And me, I go back to the Middle East twice a year. So I, I keep my connection very open. My family is still out there. The only people in Canada are me, my wife, and her parents, like, and my and my producers. But everybody else is uh, is back home. Okay. You know, and my sister's in L.A., so I have a connection. And then you have guys like Omar in L.A. who is very Syrian. With Omar Afendim. Omar Afendim. He's very Syrian with his content and what he talks about. But he's also very American. You know. So I think we're reaching a, a point in creativity with Arabs where we can finally be ourselves. Like, although things are worse than they were 10, 15 years ago uh, in public narrative, we're now deciding, like, forget, the, forget what people are saying about us. Let's just say what we want about ourselves, you know? I think we're getting comfortable doing that. Right. Yeah. And look at what you guys are doing. This is an example. Like, it's, yeah. it's a step forward, you know? Yeah. yeah. We got to that. I got to that point, actually. I was like, you know what? I'm just tired of hearing white people talk about me. I just want to do it myself. I want to talk to our people, yeah. and I want to expose their voices and their stories. Yeah. And it'll it'll change things yeah. over time. So, it takes time, man. It does. It does. Yeah. That you know, when you get out of a relationship that's abusive, let's say you were in that relationship for four years, they say it takes just about four years to get over it. Right. And, you know, so if we've been in a, an abusive relationship with our own governments for decades. And then in relation to the governments in, in the West that we live under for decades, it's going to take decades to get out of it. So we might not be the generation to shift, but we definitely are setting the template for the next generation to do it. You know. So moving back to your music, mm. your music is well known to be heavily politicized. You know, you, you talk about the Arab struggle 
Muslim struggle, etc. But I know I've heard you say that you started recording music, you started doing music in 2000. And that was before 9-11, yeah. before the invasion of Ida. And I was just wondering, was your content different then? Were you just sort of doing, you know, stuff about yourself as an individual versus you and your identity as an Arab and like free Palestine, free Ida, etc.? No, I think I think that's where I'm at now, where I'm talking from a personal perspective of my music. Uh, with my new record with World War Free now, it's very much about who I am as Yasin. That's why I even changed my artist name to Narsi. Oh, okay. I introduced you as Narsi. No, which is bad. fine. It's still something that I use. But Narsi is neo-Arab rebel called Yasin. It's my. It's like a, um, an acronym for okay. my real name because I wanted to just be myself in the studio and not overthink and make slogans and banners and carry those around with me. So in the beginning when I was 17, 18, obviously I, I was heavily influenced by um, – darker underground hip-hop so it was really like illuminati and you know i, I was young so I, I i was just talking about conspiracies that i was aware of and then after 9 11 i started educating myself of the past history and the future history of what was going to happen between the two parts of the world and being from iraq war has been a part of my attachment to my mother country way before 9 11 like since the 80s you know since the war with iran so it's always been about politics where I'm from originally. So yeah, the early records when we were in Euphrates were very concentrated on war and our relationship to the West and the East, blah, blah, blah. But as I filtered all those feelings out, I started finding the core hu human feelings that me and you can relate to regardless of where we're from. If you're black or Iraqi or Chinese or Japanese, whatever struggle you're going through in life, I'm trying to tap into those feelings so people can relate, you know. Right. And I mean, I did definitely notice that it was a lot uh, more introspective World War Free now. Mm. But the the thing that I also noticed was sonically, it was quite different from the rest of your work. Mm. I felt like in the production, there mm. was a lot more layers. Mm. And um, particularly the way you sampled Arabic in in some of those tracks, mm. uh, like Love Me, Hate Me, mm. where you had the Do You Love Me from the Bendeli family mm. and Maku. Maku, yeah. Maku. Yeah. What does Maku mean? Maku means like... Um, you know when they say shaku maku, uh, they say shaku maku yeah, yeah, yeah. like what's up. When you say maku, it means uh, there isn't, like makushi, there ain't, there ain't nothing. Or maku ahsan min adna is like ain't nobody better, okay. you know. So maku is ain't, I guess. It's like mafi, what yeah. we say in mafi. the Levant. Yeah, yeah, it's like, like mafi, yeah, chufi yeah. mafi, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, even even down to, and this is a conversation I had with my producer Nawar, who's also Iraqi. Like, if we were to sample any Arabic referencing in the music, it'll either be quarter note music, which is the sonic representation of our culture, or keep the samples very limited to vocal samples that come from home, but where we can subvert them in a way where a white person will hear it and think it's funny, but then they'll realize it's actually Arabic, you know? So the drum beat on Maku is very Iraqi. It's very Chobi music, which is like our Depka in a way, you know. And with Do You Love Me, it's a it's an Arabic guy singing in English. So it's it's straight up the mix of the two worlds. Right. Know? I also think that we have to start thinking of presenting our art in a way to people to invite them into our culture, as opposed to being like, this is who we are. like Because that closes people's minds right away. So if you mask it with stuff they're used to hearing, like... 808 drums and, and tempos, they'll come in and they'll be a part of the examination of our culture in a different way. Ain't nobody better. I put a bet on every letter. Can nobody get us? Can nobody get us? Viva Vendetta. 
nothing you can tell us. This is our era, the people power rhythm. The beat is our mission. It's either now or never, never, ever, never, ever. Let now be forever. Nobody better. You better get up. You are hip hop artists. Mm. And your book, The Die Tribes of a Dying Tribe, covers how hip hop is used as a way to understand your identity, especially the identity of the underrepresented. In your research, did you did you question at all or did you find at all, you know, why were we, especially Arabs, why are we seeking a musical genre that is specifically black American musical genre to voice our identity rather than create one of our own? Oh, man. I don't know if we, <laughs> I don't know if we have time or the energy to create our own, but I think hip hop is a, is like the um the the final phase of music. If you think about the creative element of making hip hop music, it was very much sampling the past and creating beats out of past drum breaks, right? And then eventually when it became more about sampling, people would take stuff from all over the world and reappropriate it to make beats. So we're just talking about the sonic element of the music. And then the narrative building on top, the lyrics and stuff is very much in the moment. This is what I'm going through. This is my struggle. These are my people. Boom, boom, boom. It came at a point in history where we sort of reached the cap in in where we could go. Both the digital element of hip-hop, the sampling element of hip-hop, and the narrative element of hip-hop created a template for all cultures. And it's youth culture. So... Japanese kids started listening to Wu-Tang and related to it, though it's about these guys in Staten Island and their struggle and, and drug dealing and, and murder and all this stuff that was around them. So when I heard straight out of Compton and I was living in Abu Dhabi, which is hardly any struggle compared to Compton, it invited me to Compton. And it taught me that I can tell my story and invite people to Montreal or to a young boy in Basra that's living there and what his experience is. Uh, it's a template that nobody else has created. The black American struggle is one of the most resilient, like what came out of that struggle is one of the most beautiful things in the world, you know, because it was such a crazy form of injustice uh, when it came to slavery. It was it was so extreme that the creativity that came out of it is extreme. Look at America and most of the most of the best art that came out of here was from that community, you know. Right, and I thought it was very inspirational. It just touched me in a way that nothing else has touched me before. So, so you feel like your music, um, the medium, the style of your message is expressed best through like hip hop and and those kinds of styles. Yeah, but if you listen to this album, I really try to even break that. Like, I'm not trying to fit into the hip hop bubble because. It's going in a direction where I'm I'm getting older, and it's going in a lot. And I don't want to say a dumber direction, but a, a um, more shallow. I think. Yeah, I like, think most forms of art are becoming more shallow. Yeah, today, they're becoming anyway. because people are becoming uh, they're digesting less. They're sort of tasting and moving on, right? So I wanted to make an album that blended like Arabi music with classical music, with a lot of the breakdowns. There's just music, no lyrics. Even the drums and the live element to the album was something that I wanted to take a departure from hip-hop music, you know? Although the core of it is definitely hip-hop, you know? But hip-hop was the only thing that spoke to me and allowed me to speak freely and not censor myself. Uh, and it still is that art form for me. It's very important. I even teach it on a university level to kids. and uh, Not kids, but they're 18 to 21. And they're digesting information through hip-hop culture. 
hip hop is their main like filter. So I guess it's a generational thing too, you know. You know, I noticed something about you and this is okay, so doing hip hop as a non black artist is can be a bit of a contentious issue. Mm-hmm. Uh especially for uh, white people doing hip hop, right? And there's been a lot of controversy in regards to like Macklemore, to in uh, Iggy Azalea, whatever, getting props for taking on this genre and getting hailed for it while black artists get ignored about it. But I think you're, you know, you do a pretty good job at giving props where props are due. And you've maintained relationships with like well-known black artists such as like Yassine Bey, formerly mm. known as Mostef, mm. Talib Kweli, um, Jay Alec. Mm. And do you think that it's important to to sort of have that dynamic and not isolate yourself as like I'm a ha- Arab hip hop artist and so I'm on I'm doing a different thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, two things. There, there there's a difference between appropriating culture and paying homage to the culture that you're utilizing as a platform to speak to. So, with everything that I do, with every song that I record, I make sure that I'm not abusing the space that I have, you know, and paying homage to the origin of why the culture existed and that's a natural thing because i I, i'm searching for justice for things that'll never get justice for for uh, moments in history that you can't really justify you know and that was the origin of the culture so making sure that i use the platform in a respectful way to the origin and the originators of the culture is very important for me and secondly my relationships with people like you know yasin and and talib and even Jay, I've never met Jay, but Jay has always supported me, you know, and, and he's uh, he's a legend already without an album, you know. And with Yasin and Talib, I think I connected with them on a human level, on just an, a, an earthly level and realizing through them, through Black Star, I realized my responsibility as a, uh, an other in society, both on a cultural level, but also on a musical level. Like they used their platform in a way that nobody else did. You know, and Talib is still out there being very in touch with the community. And uh, Moses or Yasin is very much culturally sharing the world with people through his work. So when I connected with them, it wasn't like you're a black artist and I'm an Arab artist and I pay homage to what you do. It was like they recognize that I'm trying to do something human with hip hop and, and vice versa. So, yeah, it's just being being aware of the platform you're using and making sure that you don't appropriate the culture, but respect the space that you've been given to utilize within that culture. Um, in Fatwa, you coined the phrase, Iraq is the new black. Yeah. And I know that you've said that there's two layers to it in terms of saying anything is the new black is saying that something is the new thing. Yeah. And also that the public fear was shifting from black Americans to Arabs and Muslims. Mm. But it could be considered also an erasure of black struggles because in no way is, you know, is the black struggle over and is in no, in no way are the black, like is the black community safe and no longer feared as we know now. Mm. Is this something because it's been a while since you did fatwa and you did that. Is that something that you look back on and you, you stick in with it or are you would you reconsider it or are feeling like maybe it was sort of not the right way to say it? No, I, I Iraq is the new black was me saying that Arab is sexy, you know, like, you know, Kim Kardashian can be considered from where we're from. And that's what's sexy right now. Uh, uh, Kofias are sexy. Uh, you know, Arab women are you're seeing more and more Arab women being models, Arab tattoos on Rihanna. It's se- it's like a sexified violence towards our culture. So when I say Iraq is the new black, saying something is the new black in fashion terms is saying that it's the new 
a cool thing. But at the same time, me saying it to a black guy is, is saying that, and I did a whole song about this called Public Enemy Number Two, which I, where I sampled Public Enemy, who used to say they were Public Enemy Number One. I'm saying we're number two. I'm not saying that our struggle is more valuable or less valuable than the black struggle, but I'm saying that we now understand, or I understand what it feels like to be viewed as black. And a friend of mine called Ferrari Shepard, who stopped being famous on Twitter, says that black is not a skin color. Black is an experience. It's when you're blacked out of society, when they block you out and they sort of put marker on you and make you feel like you're unseen, you're unheard. That's what is a black experience to me, besides the African-American experience and what it represents. So in no way, in no way would I try to erase or attempt or mean to erase a culture that birthed the format of communication that I use to speak. It's, it's, it, it would be asinine and completely idiotic of me to even attempt to do that. I don't feel that way anyway. You sort of will speak out against any ignorance from the hip-hop community about Arabs, like especially regarding uh, the Bust Rhyme song, mm. Arab Money. You did a remix of it. Hey, yo, this song is so racist right now. Beat is so garbage. Yo, Danny Neville. Put the headphones up. Let these brothers know what the Middle East is about. Misrepresent us in Dubai. It ain't Arab money. It's called Arab money. Arabs don't play up in Basra. It ain't Arab money. It's called Arab money. And did you feel like your little clapback brought... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not to, not to dismiss it as little. <laughs> no, it is a clapback. I I really enjoyed it. Like to me, to me, it was like great. It was a great criticism of the song because it was really offensive to us because it really stereotyped Arabs to one group of rich Gulf Arabs, you know. And mm. this is not who we are, and we have a lot of struggles beyond that. Mm. And so, did you did you get any response from that? Yeah, I mean, long story short, you know, I grew up on Busta Rhymes, but I think the guy that shaped the ethos of my music is Chuck D. And again, to utilize the platform of hip-hop to pay homage to the origin of any culture, and f first and foremost, black culture. So when I saw an artist that I grew up on uh, that influenced me to a great degree, speaking on my culture in a, in a single faceted way, I felt it was my responsibility to use the platform to clarify that it's not that. And that's not his fault. That's the fault of our people who invite him to the Gulf and treat him like royalty, that's what he's seen of the Middle East. not like he went to Palestine or Iraq or any of those places. So he doesn't see that besides on American television. So I was just saying, like, you know, in Palestine, kids don't shop at these malls, you know? Like, they don't live like this. Not every Arab lives like this. I'm just saying. And, yeah, I spoke to Basta about it, and, you know, there was a public apology and all that stuff, and I didn't need an apology. I just wanted to clarify it, you know? And that's what the platform was given to me to do. I've seen that happen several times uh, with hip-hop from artist to artist. So I felt it was my responsibility to do that. In the words of Chuck D, you know, if I didn't use it properly, then I would be abusing my own culture. You, know? you said you go to back to the Middle East twice a year. Where, where do you go? I go, uh, you know, I go to Beirut often. I go to Amman often. I go to Dubai often. Um, those are the, definitely the three that I go to the most. Are those centers of activity, culture, like music where you you go work or it's like family Be Beirut and Amman is both family and there's an artistic community that I work with 
Uh, and Dubai is mostly, you know, show related. My my parents live out there, so I go see them. But also, um, I do a lot of my brand collaborations in in Dubai for the region. So, have you gone back? When was the last time you were in Iraq? Have you? I've been back like um, since I was five. I'm 33 now. I'm just curious. Since the fall of Saddam, like maybe you at least have connections. What are people thinking? Like the deterioration of the country. I know how it is for Palestine, you know, I mean, but we can go back and forth. We can just kind of watch the occupation and experience it. But I, I, I'm curious for your Iraqis and Syrians, how literally like just 10 years ago, not for Iraq, it goes back a little longer, but even for Syria, right? You go back 10 years, it's normal. I used to go to Amman. My uncle would bring me back from Syria. All of a sudden now no one's going there. For Iraq, same thing. Like back in the day, you could do it and it was a normal thing. Now you can't. How, how, how do you process that? Like, What's the sentiment of the community? I think that a lot of the time people try to separate, you know, like there's a, a, a line between when Saddam was in power and now and after, but they're connected. If it wasn't for the power vacuum that came out of knocking Saddam out of power, there wouldn't have been this mess. It's similar to what we were talking about earlier with a with a with a abusive relationship. When you get out of it, it takes just about the same amount of time to get over it. I think when you took somebody that controlled everyone through fear and uh, and abuse of power out of their place and didn't secure the per- the perimeters of the people being safe and the culture being safe, uh, it's going to collapse on itself. And that's what's happening right now. The, it became like, um, you know that game Risk, that board game Risk? Mm-hmm. When you move into a country and occupy it, and then you just take all your shit out and move, everybody is sort of going to trample on top of each other. Mm -hmm. If you're starved your whole life and then someone puts a huge meal in front of you, you're going to eat until you get sick. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's happening now. I think we're at the phase where um, people took advantage of the space and the void that was in Iraq to fight their own battles. A lot of the fighters that are in Iraq now are not from there. So it's a huge mess because nobody really gave gave a damn about the future. It was a personal vendetta that needed to be handled. It got handled, but it didn't get handled in the proper way. And when you lie to somebody in a relationship, it eventually damages your relationship. And I think they went into Iraq on the pretense of a lie, and this is the karma that is coming out of it towards the rest of the world. You know. But are like families, and I'm not really speaking necessarily on Saddam, but the deterioration of like the entire stability of the country. Mm. You know, like everyone's if, trying if to that, leave. Everyone's trying to. Everyone's leave. trying to leave, and so like I just think of myself. Yes, I Palestine's messed up, but my Jordanian half, I can still go back and see people. But I kind of almost waiting for the day where I can't do that anymore, and it freaks me out. Mm. And I, I just kind of want to know people just don't go to the. They can't visit the homeland anymore. They're just going to other places in mm. the area, just waiting for things to mm. settle. Like, is there hope? Of it ending anytime soon? Well, I'm a public figure, so I, I definitely have a bit of resistance towards going back to Iraq. A lot, I've been offered a lot of opportunities to go back and, and like do a show about going back home with a camera crew, and I refuse to do that. Like Next time I go to Iraq, I want to go with my father or my grandfather or my wife or, and go have a personal experience and like cry and not be on camera. You know, and a lot of my family, we had to move out slowly. And, and I speak from my personal perspective, like our, our families, we moved out because there was nothing left. All my younger cousins needed an opportunity to be able to thrive. And I think the people that are suffering the most in Iraq are, are going to be the kids. 
I mean, there's the education system is failing. The uh, you know the safety is not there. The um, radiation from the bombs that were used is really making people sick. Uh, it's it's um, it's not repairable for a very long time. It's uh, and I don't wish that upon anyone. I hope I hope you can always go back to for the I, state. I do too, but I just man, it's, it's gonna like come. one after the other. Yeah, you know? but I think. In the beginning, in the early 2000s, after September 11th, there was a lot of talk of an American agenda in the Arab world, and and nobody, everyone thought it was conspiracy, and they're like, oh, shut up, you know, they're just trying to get Osama and Saddam, but look, look where we're at now. It happened. Because they stretched it out over 10, 15 years, it became what we thought it would be, and people were laughing at us, you know? And no one is devoid of guilt. We're all We're all complicit in it. We, you know, we watched our governments do what they did, and we went out and protested. But that's all we did. We didn't know what else to do. I think that we just gotta pray, man, and hope for a better future for the kids of our countries, whether it's Palestine, Syria, Iraq, uh, Yemen, anywhere, you know, and the people that abuse that power, the nations that abuse that power dynamic that exists in the Arab world. And I'm talking about the Arab nations that have used that power in the Arab world. They got it coming too. They just. They can't run away from it. It's going to come back to you. Speaking of your grandfather, you had an album. The Nerjasi Project. Nerjasi. Mm. And that was unique because it was in all Arabic. So you're rapping in Arabic. Mm. And you had your grandpa like intro. And outro. And outro, mm. which was pretty cool. But you're an English language based MC. Mm. And I know sometimes you'll throw in like some phrases, like in Arabic. Mm. I did that. See. Mm. Um, Arabic is a really difficult language, especially when you think about it in poetry. It's mm. a really complicated language. How was that process? Of, it was of, it was painstaking, man. Like, you know, I'm surrounded by people like Shadia and Omar uh, Fendam, and they're very, like, proper Arabic, and, and they're, even their structure of delivery is very much in the Arabic style and prose. Whereas I wrote my Arabic record in Iraqi Arabic, and not only in that, in like conversational Iraqi Arabic with English bar structure, which can be misinterpreted as bad Arabic, but I did that on purpose. Like I could have spent the time to write, you know, but that's not how I think. So I wanted to be very honest about how the culture sits in me and the language sits in me uh, and juxtapose that with my grandfather, who's the original poet in my family. So when my grandfather hears it, he's like, this stuff is beautiful and it sounds beautiful. What the hell are you talking about? You know, because it's disjointed like my English uh, poetic structure. But at the same time, I've gotten great feedback from people in Iraq, like young kids who are MCs in Basra, where my father is from. That's the most people that have reached out to me. I, I could, you know, there's over 20 MCs that have reached out from to me from Basra saying that album uh, is one of my favorite records. And that's why I did it, you know. Even if it's just those 20 kids that relate to it, that's exactly who I did it for. People thought that they knew us, but we are hybrids. They hybrids gave us like you live life in the sewer.
Um, I know you had a an art exhibit called Arab Winter that was that was supposed to be a sort of extension of Arab Spring. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, Arab Winter was a, a sort of the first artistic collabo that we did between me, uh, Sundas Abdul Hadi, who's my wife, but also her on her own. She's always been an amazing visual artist, and she studied that, and she's a curator. Uh, El Seed, who is a Tunisian ca- calligraphy graffiti artist, and Karim Jabari, who is also a calligraphy, light calligraphy artist. And Arab Winter was sort of us reflecting early on. It was like during the Arab Spring, I immediately felt like this is too good to be true. You know, something's there's got to be some hidden hands that we're unaware of at the moment. So it was sort of a reflection on that, like who are these hidden hands? What is really happening? So we designed a gallery that was the Arab street the day after the revolution, what it looked like, how destroyed it was, not how how beautiful our nations are going to be after the removal of these power structures. Um, and ironically, we're in the Arab winter now. I yeah, think, you're pretty spot on, I guess. I think, it's, I think everyone was a little excited, like the we, Obama factor, where we thought Obama yeah. was going to save us something, you know. Everything is hype. Yeah. The, the problem with the internet with information now is that we, we're quick to jump on um, news that's kind of positive and think it's going to change everything. But we move on very quickly from positive news to the next. So, uh, yeah, I think that uh, it's going to take decades to fix the mess that we're in. Look at yeah. Syria, man. Like, You'll never go to old Damascus again. Ever like there's no taking it back unless they create the time machine, you know. Yeah. So um, that's what Arab winter is. It's 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 the winter of discontent that exists after our our final attempt to make things better, and we couldn't. You know. So what what's next? What can we look forward to in the future with you? Well, I'm teaching more at university, so hopefully I can move around with with the class and and share the knowledge that I'm learning from kids uh, or from from the, the new generation and and infuse it into my work. Steadily working on music, doing a lot of artist collabos with We Are the Medium with our crew. My attempt in the next five years to ten years, inshallah, with all the artists around us, is to create a collective consciousness that we push through our artwork. Start making films, start uh, doing art shows, and and creating a more collaborative environment where we tell our story, not our story is this vis-a-vis this one that already exists. Like, no more of that. We just want to start building together and create an artistic community that is more powerful than the political community that speaks for us. And where can listeners get your album? Well, you can go on any platform, Spotify, Apple Music, any of the streaming platforms that exist all over the Internet, and just look up Narsi World War Free now. You'll find it. You can buy my album on iTunes, and uh, you can buy a physical copy on my Big Cartel, which is narsi.bigcartel.com. Uh, and I'm sure you can find it on Pirate Bay and stuff. Just go down, <laughs> go download it and share it with people. You know? Just YouTube. I recorded off YouTube. Yeah, no. I'm, I'm sure Kidding. people have done that already, yeah. you know. And if anyone wants to follow you, what's your social media? Uh, my social media is the narcissist, T-H-E-N-A-R-C-I-C-Y-S-T. I tried to get Narcy, but somebody took it and hasn't tweeted from it in a long time. <laughs> my Instagram is Narcy Nars, and you can find me on Facebook as Narcy. Great. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, guys. We appreciate you guys. Thank you for what you do. Yeah, thank you. Thank too. you. Pieces. Thank you for listening to Arabiyat. You can email us at arabiyat.podcast at gmail.com. That's A-R-A-B-I-Y-A-A-T dot podcast at gmail.com. And follow us on Twitter at Arabiyat and on facebook.com slash Arabiyat podcast.
Our theme song is by Mukata. The track is called Ahyat. Follow him on soundcloud.com slash B-O-I-K-U-T-T.